Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 8 today. The second half of this first salvo that Paul launches in in this this new chapter. And in this passage, Paul will show us that There's another key Old Testament figure that will confirm that God's plan of salvation has always been by grace alone through faith alone. We're in part three of Paul's letter, and he's laying out the exclusive solution for mankind, which God provides only in the gospel, and the the great apostle knows that everyone needs it, but he also knows that this, this gospel, this good news, will, will meet with some resistance from people who, who want to work for it, or people who are religious, or think themselves to be moral enough to, to get to heaven. And, and so Paul goes about proving his, his case. And so after that long, detailed look at human sin... Paul declares that we all have this glorious hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he presented that gospel in its purest form in verses 21 through 26 of chapter 3. He says it's a righteousness provided in Christ by God as a gift, and it comes to us through faith without any mixture of works or or our own merit and And then immediately after that, Paul lays out some realities that are byproducts of a gospel like like this. They're they're implications of of God's way of salvation in verses 27 through through 31. A a salvation that does not involve working to, to get to God. Well, a salvation like that means there's no boasting before God because there's no works that are part of it or that can be added to it. And it also means that there's equal footing, the Everyone comes to the same door because there's only one God and He saves the same way. And and it also means that the law is is fully upheld because faith in Christ establishes the law. The, The Lord Jesus kept the law perfectly and the law demands a penalty for sin. So He also paid the penalty and And as part of his argument to prove this, Paul now turns to the Old Testament for evidence, which he's primarily targeting Jewish people, people that that would reject uh, faith alone for for salvation. That that seems old hat to us. You've probably heard that from a child in in Sunday school. You sang songs about it. Matt just sang a song to us. But but, but that that wasn't a normal way of thinking in, in Paul's day. God has always been the one who provided righteousness by a gracious gift, and man has always received it by faith alone, but but the Jewish people didn't think that. Paul shows then Abraham was saved by faith alone as the father of Judaism, and so was David, the greatest king of Israel. And so you can think of chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, as an Old Testament commentary on what he just got done saying. He, He demonstrates these truths by using the Old Testament saints as evidence which is a great place to go, obviously, because Paul did not invent a new religion. Christianity is not a new religion. Jesus was very Jewish. He is the Jewish Messiah, fulfilling all the promises that God made in the Old Testament. So chapter 4, the entire chapter is the boundary of Paul's Old Testament archaeology dig 
but, but he first digs up the bones of Abraham and, and the bones of David, and he, and he reconstructs their salvation testimony to prove that, that, that this, is, this is the way. The, the structure of the verses are very straightforward. Uh, verse 1 asks the question about how Abraham was saved. Verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? There's the question. Then verses 2 through 5, he answers it. And then verses 6 through 8, David, King David, corroborates uh, all of that from his, from his life and, and, and words, which is the part that we're going to, to see it today. This is how we outlined it. Justification was by faith alone in the Old Testament. He gives an Old Testament, he calls for an Old Testament examination, verses 1 and 2. He then gives Old Testament evidence. He actually quotes Genesis then he proves that there's an Old Testament elimination of works because of Abraham's sin. And then he gives an Old Testament explanation, which comes from King David, who also illustrates the, the, the truth. We, we looked at the first one and the, the second one last time just by way of review. First, we saw Abraham's salvation is offered. And there's the question about Abraham's works. And then the result of boasting is prohibited. Look, if you would, again at verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And so Paul starts with a question that he knows everyone agrees on. The Jews agree that Abraham was the ultimate example in the New Testament, the ultimate example of righteousness even. And so Paul then says, does, does the salvation of Abraham... Does that validate what I just got done saying in, in chapter 3 about the gospel? That the gospel is by faith alone, that excludes boasting, that it prohibits more than one way, that it upholds the law. And, and then he answers that question in verse 2. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. He, he says if Abraham was declared right with God on the basis of works, then he has grounds for boasting. And that's not possible because no creature can boast before the, before the Creator. He forces the opposition to deal with a contradiction that they didn't realize that they had. I mean, they believed that Abraham was, was made righteous by his works. And, I mean, he willingly offered his own son for Pete's sake. I mean, so, so Paul says... So you're saying that he earned a righteous testimony. And, and the Jewish people would say, right, yeah, absolutely, he, 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 he did. Paul would say, then, then God owes him something. And he could demand that as a claim. And they would say, uh, no, I mean, no, no one can boast before God. And Paul would then say, well, well, then he didn't earn it. It wasn't based on his works. And it would just go around and around in a circle there and Paul, by logical argument, by Paul's logical argument, they were forced to conclude that works have no part of salvation, or there's a contradiction. But then he calls on a higher authority than, than, his, than his own logic. He, he calls on the Old Testament. Abraham's faith is an Old Testament evidence that salvation is by faith alone. Verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it's always the safest place to start. Just go to the Bible. Sadly, many people don't do that or begin there or even in there. Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6. And we turn back. We saw that how God speaks and then Abraham questions and then God promises and Abraham believes. 
And the result was that God declared Abraham righteous based on faith. He, Abraham believed in Yahweh and God counted that to him for, for righteousness. God reckoned or credited Abraham's faith. That was the deciding factor in his relationship with Abraham, not works. Abraham was saved before he was even a Jew. You realize that? I mean, before he ever had circumcision, Abraham was saved. And he was saved on the basis of faith. Of course, then Abraham's, uh, what followed Abraham's faith was obedience, just like James says. But faith was the engine of the train. And with that point, Paul then returns to his original argument, and he gives this third Old Testament proof. The third Old Testament proof that justification was by faith alone is, the Old is, is Old Testament sin, human sin, in the Old Testament requires an elimination of works. Because an individual is not a righteous wage earner. He was an ungodly, he's an ungodly grace receiver. Look, if you would, at verse 4. Here's new. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And so Paul here in verse 4 and 5 draws two theological conclusions from, from what verse 3 declares about, about Abraham's justification. Abraham was justified by faith alone. And so these two verses are the, the theological application of of what Genesis states. Works have no part because God's justification is not something earned by saints. It's something given to sinners, sinners who believe. It's a repeat of, of what he says in verses 1 and 2, but, but now it's stated in a universal truth. And, but he adds something here that's, that's significant. You might have just glanced right over it, but, but I mean it is the, the hammer blow or the thunderclap of this of this entire section. I mean, the main comparison is this verse is believing versus working. And, and the content or the context is, the, is, the, is a person's basis for justification. Look at it again. Now to the one who works, there's the working part. His wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. All of that has to do with working and, and what you earn for when you work. Here comes the contrast in verse 5. But, here's the contrast, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies, his faith is credited. And there's the believing, the, the working and, and the believing. And the topic is being right with God, being, being justified be, before God. A declaration at the final judgment. How will God declare you whenever you stand before him? Right or being justified or not. Notice Paul continues this accounting idea that, that, that he initiates back in verse 3. He's talking about wages and compensation, not, not crediting in a bank account. He, he, he says, when you work for God, your wages show up on your theological W-2, not on your giving record. It's what you've earned. It's not a gift. So, so salvation is by works, then, then you should have credit for that on your, on your W-2. And we understand this, perfect, this concept of, of working and earning perfectly. I mean, 
at the end of your pay period, you expect to get a check based on the compensation that you agreed to whenever you, you took the job. But Paul says if next Friday your boss or company representative brought to you your check and said, here is your gracious gift from your benevolent employer, you, you, you would say, what do you mean a gift? I worked hard for this money. You made me punch the clock, uh, and I got credit for, for every, every single second. Or you might turn that around if you're applying for a new job and you get up to the point where you're applying for this job and it comes to the, to the, the moment you talk about salary or your hourly wage. And if the interviewer said, oh, well, there's no salary. I mean, you don't get paid for what you do. I mean, at the end of every two weeks, the company decides whether they want to they give you a gift or not. I mean, you would say this is not volunteer work. I mean, you wouldn't accept that. You wouldn't take that job. It's, it's not equitable. And Paul says that's exactly why salvation can't be by works in the spiritual realm. Because your works are not worth the, God's wages. Your works are not worth righteousness, which is what is required to get into heaven. And so he goes on in verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes... In him who justifies the ungodly. He believes in him, believes in God, believes in the one true and living God and who he is and all that he is, his holiness and his perfections. He believes in him. And this, this him, this God justifies. And how does he justify? He justifies by faith. His faith is credited as righteousness. His faith is not a righteous work. His faith connects him to to the Lord's promise. And the Lord's promise is whoever believes is not condemned. And I want you to notice that this little word that, that I, I skipped over that changes everything. It, it, it's the word ungodly. Do you see it there? He believes in Him who justifies, not the righteous, but justifies the, the ungodly. It's a sharp word. Some of your translations say justifies the wicked. I mean, that would have been a shocking Verse. I mean, if faith alone would have shocked a Jewish person, God justifying the ungodliness would have blown their mind. I mean, they can take you to verses in the Old Testament that says, God will in, in no wise excuse the guilty. The word means someone irreverent. It, it's someone who is wicked, who has no care at all for the Lord. And that little word echoes everything that Paul went and laid out blow by blow in the previous two and a half chapters about our sin. and It changes the entire earning and working equation. The word means that you're not a worthy hire, much less a good employee. So you don't want God to give you a W-2. There's nothing on it. In fact, there's debt that you would owe the Lord. You don't want to depend upon a paycheck that you, you wouldn't get, is what Paul is saying. In spiritual things, God has something that you couldn't earn if you wanted to or tried, proven by this little word. And, and God simply has mercy on you. He must have mercy on you. and So salvation is based on His compassionate grace. So from a divine standpoint, it's not possible that righteousness is earned by works because God, the Creator, is never obligated by His creatures. God is not a debtor to any man. And from a human standpoint, it's not possible to earn because mankind is unable to net godly wages. Paul will continue this same concept later in a verse that you probably memorized in Sunday school. The wages that you and I earn are what? Death. The wages of sin 
is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How do we receive? How do we gain the gift of, of God? By believing in Him who justifies the ungodly. And that's a mouthful. And so justification is a gift freely bestowed, not a, not a wage justly earned. You remember Snow White and the, the Seven Dwarfs? Do they even play that anymore? Is that politically correct? Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work I go. That's the, that's the tune a religious man hums while he's trying to earn his way to, to heaven. Paul says God's elevator music plays a completely different tune. It plays amazing grace, nothing but the blood of Jesus and blessed assurance all on repeat over and over and over. And one of the ways that you can test which path you're on is how you respond to that word. How do you respond to the concept of grace? How do you respond to the, of God calling you ungodly? Do you fully embrace that? How do you respond to the fact that, that God says He must grant you the gift of salvation by, by believing alone? F.F. F. Bruce said the greatest, this is the greatest of all of God's wonders. This God who created the universe from nothing, which we'll look at tonight, and caused the, uh, caused the, the dead to life also justifies the ungodly. And who better to illustrate that truth in living color than King David, right? And so this fourth proof that salvation is by faith alone in the Old Testament comes from David's forgiveness. It serves as an Old Testament explanation so David's life is, a, is an illustration that salvation must be by, by faith alone. I mean, what works could David do to undo what, what he had what he'd done, the sin that, that he committed? And then David even gives testimony to that as a confirmation in Psalm 32, which Paul quotes here in verses 7 and 8. Look if you would at verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Where does David do that? Well, he does it right here in Psalm 32, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. I mean, Paul now says David's life also testifies of this truth. And David gave testimony of it because he personally experienced it. Did you know your salvation testimony? You're all saved the same way, but your testimony is unique to you. I mean, it is a blessed gift. You can share with others the way that the Lord saved you, and it's unique. You're going to come the same way through Jesus Christ by faith, but, but how in which God drew you and the way in which He convicted you and, and who, who shared Jesus with you, that's yours. Oh, be careful with your testimony. Don't, 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 uh, don't squander it. Mar it by sin and, and the things of the world. And, and, and don't fail to give it like, 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 like some people. Do what David does here. David gives his testimony. There's another reason, though, that, that Paul quotes David, not just as an illustration, but, but he's a second witness. You probably remember in the Old Testament there's a requirement in in Deuteronomy, of two witnesses, I've got it written down here, Deuteronomy 19.15, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed, 
On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And so that wasn't just in, in the matter of, of somebody committing sin, but, but to confirm something. Jewish testimony required two witnesses. And when it had to do with the Scriptures, it was significant if one was from the, from the Pentateuch or from the Torah and the other one would be from the, the prophets or the writings. And so that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He gives a testimony about Abraham spoken by Moses in Genesis in the, in the Pentateuch, and then he gives the, 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 the evidence, the secondary witness from the, from the prophets and the writings, which is from the book of Psalms. And who better than these two men, Abraham and David? I mean, the two most important figures in the Hebrew Bible. Moses would be the third. Both of these men were fathers of the faith. Abraham was seen as righteous by his deeds, which is why Paul starts with him. And Paul says he was saved by faith alone. And David, oh, King David, so important in the life of Israel. He, he was the, the shepherd of Israel. He was the defeater of Goliath. He was their greatest king. He was their conqueror. He was their worship leader. He, he's the one who gave Israel his, their, their songbook. David was the man after God's own heart, wasn't he? But he was also an ungodly sinner, wasn't he? And he was saved by faith alone as well. <clears throat> and he talks about it in Psalm 32. Turn, if you would, back to Psalm 32. Let's look and see what, what God says here, <clears throat> what David says here in Psalm 32. I just preached this uh, from this psalm. At Brother Bill Pack's <clears throat> homegoing service. Did it from Israel. Psalm 32, it provides one of the clearest pictures of what it looks like to experience forgiveness. It's also a lesson on how to tell others how to be forgiven. Psalm 32 is considered one of the jewels of confession presented in Scripture. It's one of the seven penitential psalms Luther named it his favorite psalm, called it a sister to Psalm 51 because they mark the path to justification by faith alone. It, it provides the Christian with the clear teaching on confession and forgiveness and the blessings that, that, that come from it. it. It's a psalm that is connected to David's sin with Bathsheba <clears throat> and his murder of Uriah which is recorded in 2 Samuel 11. I mean, you, you recall David's, David's fall, I'm sure. I mean, it's infamous. Upon seeing Bathsheba in a compromising position, he lusts after her, he, he sins for her, and then he commits adultery. She was the wife of one of David's mighty men, his right-hand man, Uriah the Hittite. And then upon finding out that she's with child, after he can't lie out of it, after he can't convince Uriah to, to lie with his wife so he will think that the baby is his own, David arranges to have Uriah killed in battle to cover his sin. And you remember how David is confronted by the prophet Nathan and that story of the little ewe lamb and how this deep conviction sets in and David realizes then how far his sin has taken him and God's anger toward it. And so David 
fears God greatly. In Psalm 51 and 32, he records his response. Psalm 51 is the actual record. Psalm 32 is the fruit of joy that's, that's, that's there. <clears throat> so the psalm is an instruction. And the flow of it builds an intensity. Look at how this is, is laid out. You have sin in verses 1 and 2. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You have conviction in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Then you have confession at the beginning of verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. And then you have this blessed forgiveness, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David makes a promise in Psalm 51, we won't go there. But David says, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted. And Psalm 32 is the fulfillment of that. And that's the verse that Paul quotes, these first two verses. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. Paul says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute, and there's our word, iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Paul quotes these verses because he's looking at justification from the other side of the coin. The opposite of righteous Abraham is sinful David. And so David begins describing his need here for his sin and uh, because of his sin and the results of forgiveness. And David is remembering here what he experienced himself. He's praising God for it and he describes his need and your need. He, he uses three words for our sinfulness. He, he says he transgressed, he said he sinned, and he has iniquity. I mean, all three terms uh, give this full-orbed scope of of man's guilt before God. Uh, the word transgression is, indicates the acts of direct rebellion. You know God says, don't do this, and you do it. The word sin is, a, is an encompassing term, which, which, which means to, to, to go astray from the right path or to fall short. Those are acts of omission. God says you must do this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you didn't do that. You sinned. You, you omitted that from your life. And the third word, iniquity, is particularly despicable. It means a distortion or, a, or an absence of respect of the divine will. It, it's, the, it's the human heart that, that walks around on a regular basis with its back turned to God. And where the first and second cover action and inaction, this word covers the disposition that's in all of us. It's what we're born with. It's the fist that's raised to God in the heart. It's what Romans 3.20 says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And so David says, the iniquity of a man boasts, I am God and I need no other. And when God confronts a man with these facts and the the, the breadth of its indictment, he's just crushed by the weight of judgment. There's no, there's no room to wiggle. You say, well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't commit this. I didn't lie, I d which you did. I, I, didn't, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I have, I, I'm like the rich young ruler. I, I've been a Sunday school kid from, from my mother's womb. I didn't, I didn't transgress. 
then David would say, well, well, what about you failed to do? Well, you failed to do. You didn't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you didn't do that, and you, had a, you even resented the, the law that you didn't break because you had iniquity in your heart. And David knew this experience, and he tried to cover his sin by deception. He tried to then cover it by manipulation, and finally he covered it, tried to cover it by treachery, by murder. Robert Murray McShane said, When a man or a woman commits sin that no eye has seen, his conscience makes a coward of him. He trembles and is afraid. He feels that he has sinned and he fears that God will take vengeance. And that's what happened to David. He'd been exposed by a prophet of God and he knew he was guilty. And so immediately upon that exposure, his, his conscience burst into flame. In the depth of his hopeless guilt, he turns to God and God grants him forgiveness. And so David says, blessed is the man whom God forgives, whom God removes. Notice the forgiveness of God reaches to every level of guilt. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. God, uh, David uses three words to describe this, this work of God's forgiveness, which contains Paul's connection to faith alone. He says God forgives, lifts the weight of guilt, God covers the record of sin, He, he wills not to, not to look at it for judgment, that you failed, and, and He does not account, He does not credit, He does not impute any iniquity against the person that He pardons. It's the connection between Genesis 15 and Psalm 32, it's the word reckoned. Then he that's Abraham believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. In Psalm 32, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. In the story of Abraham, God accounts or credits his faith as righteousness. And in the story of David, God does not account David's iniquity against him. That's the full scope of imputation, the big theological word. God won't take your sin into account because He imputed it to Christ and He will take into account Christ's righteousness because that's been imputed to you. You get the credit. The Lord, the benefits of a righteous life are granted by Christ's record and the fires of sin's guilt are extinguished by Christ's payment, substitutionary payment on, on the cross. And And so then there's a declaration that's that's deserved, that's not made. People have transgressed and sinned and have iniquity, and that deserves a forensic or judicial declaration of guilt. But God does not impute or reckon that to their records, which means He he forgives them completely. That's how He does it. He, He expunges the record. And there is a declaration of righteousness that's made, which is a gracious gift from God. David says, how blessed is a person like that. Psalm 32 also tells us there is no sin that a person has ever committed that falls outside of this category, that's not able to be forgiven. I mean, as complete and comprehensive was David's guilt, God in His free grace provides a complete and comprehensive forgiveness. 
Robert Mount said, believers are the most fortunate people imaginable because the question of their sin has been settled forever. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Guilt dogs the steps of the unbeliever, but forgiveness is the sweet reward of those who trust in God. Would you like to have that kind of forgiveness? Is there an area of your life or something that you've done that dogs your conscience, guilt? You can silence it sometimes through distraction, but when no one's around, you think, then listen to David's instruction. But it gives you the first step of what, what you need to do and, and also the, the end result of receiving this forgiveness. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, How blessed when transgression is forgiven, when sin is covered, when the Lord doesn't impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit or, or no guile. How happy is a man who has his forgiveness and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's no guile. No guile means a... The person who has been forgiven is honest about their sin. I mean, what a, what a silly notion you hear from the world on a regular basis. Christians, Christians act like they don't sin. They're holier than thou. Well, maybe some of them do, but, but I doubt whether they're Christians if they do. And Christians don't, don't hide their sins. Christians are the only ones that acknowledge their sins. I mean, we, we say we're, we're the sinners to the nth degree. Not only in what we've committed, but what we failed to commit and what's in our hearts. And a person who has been forgiven by God is honest like that. A person who is forgiven is, is someone who has confessed openly their sin to God. And, and that's the starting place if you want forgiveness. If you desire forgiveness, you must not cover it. You must confess it. And David knew that from experience. Look at verse 3. Watch what happens when David didn't confess. He was far from blessed. Verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the, the fever heat of summer, Selah. I mean, David shows the process God took him through to grant him forgiveness. The process I went through. Maybe the process you went through, maybe the process you're in the middle of right, right now, he, he, he shows what resisting coming to God, what resisting confessing brings. It, it brings conviction. So in the, in the beginning, David tried to cover his sin, and he kept silent about it, and, and he says his, con, uh, his conscience tormented him he, when he wouldn't confess his sin. He says his body wasted away. You think, find that odd? Your conscience is in your mind. But David says his body wasted away. His moisture is turned into the drought of summer. It, it, this, this, that means his tongue or vitality, literally his juices uh, curled up or dried up as if the, the summer sun was beating down a, a, upon it. He describes it as this isolated torment chamber where, which resides in a guilty mind, uh, 
A man who knows he's sinned and is guilty but if refuses to acknowledge it finds consuming anguish in his own conscience and he becomes introspective and he becomes paralyzed by, by guilt. Uh, he, he finds no relief day or night. He refusing to confess, which was the outlet for it. I mean, the reason God created guilt in your conscience is to draw you to Him so He can cleanse you and forgive you. But when you refuse to do that, then, then you release those effects of a guilty conscience inwardly. And it destroys your body. I mean, the mental... Anguish and consequence of the guilt of sin can have a devastating effect on a person. Take your sleep. Take your health. A lot of mental health issues are a byproduct of unresolved sin. David describes this in terms of wasting and groaning all day long. Excruciating pain with, with no relief. That's why people avoid church. why people avoid you if you're a... A genuine believer, and have a good testimony, while people avoid preaching, they'll be reminded of these things. But notice verse 4 says there's nowhere to run. Look if you would at verse 4. David says, for day and night, there's how long it lasts, the scope of this torment, your hand was heavy upon me. <laughs> it was God's hand that brought this pressure, God's hand that brought this conviction, and it was heavy. I mean, when God's hand is set against a person, there is no escape. When the conviction of sin sets upon him, there, there's no heavier weight in, in the entire world. God is the inflictor here. David is the one being wounded, and, and yet God's purpose is good. It's to bring about confession and ultimately forgiveness. Now hear me clearly. God didn't cause your sin with the choices that you made in life. He's sovereign over everything, but He didn't cause you to do whatever got you into the mess. He didn't tempt you to do that. He tempts no man with evil. But God can use those things in order to allow your life to come falling down around your ears so you look up. And when God's hand... Is said, and there is no escape. David finally does what he only knows to do. Look at verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I acknowledged, and I did not hide. I acknowledged, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. When David finally can't take it anymore... He confesses. The pressure mounts and builds through, through silence. When I was growing up, my mother used to can. Tracy still does that at times. You know a pressure cooker? A little thing that's on the, on the top there. And then all of a sudden it locks in place. David's tongue that curled in speechless pain when he refused to repent, was now freed. It was, it was like a dam bursting when he opened his mouth. David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. My iniquity I have not hidden. My brother-in-law, whenever he, he came to Christ, sat in the, the church service, and before the church service, a little country church, and the preacher asked for testimonies before the sermon started, and two guys stood up and gave testimony, and 
One of those testimonies was about a, the beer joint that's right down the road from the, from the church. And in his testimony, he said, I drove by that beer joint last night, and I just, I prayed for the people that were in there. I thought, how sad, people that are in that, in, in that place, they don't know Christ. He's listening to this testimony. My brother would, would go there, brother-in-law would go there on a, on a regular basis. And he said, I, I, I couldn't wait till the sermon was over. And when the sermon was over, I grabbed my wife by the, by the hand and drug her down the aisle at the invitation. When you get to the place where, where, where you're under this kind of conviction and you see that the, 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 the way of escape is, is God, you, you take it. David here says, I have a spirit without deceit, without guile. And he testifies of the release, the forgiveness that flowed when he acknowledged his sin, when he no longer hid his iniquity. He said, oh God, I've sinned, I did it, I confess, and it was me and only me. And look at God's response at the end of verse 5. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You gave me 20 Hail Marys and a debt to pay. You said, be really, really sorry for years and years and try to go make right everything that you've done. It's not what it says, is it? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. God's response to the confession was complete. In immediate forgiveness. I mean, do you realize what this says? It says no matter how long you've carried your guilt, how long have you carried it? Uh, months or years? Do you know how long you have to wait for, God's, uh, for God to take it away? For the burden to be completely removed? For the guilt to be lifted? For your sin to be forgiven? It's immediate. It's instant. It's complete. You say, you don't know what I've done. Oh, I bet I do. I've done some things myself. Are you a liar? So was David. Have you committed some gross sexual sin? So did David. Did you abuse your power? Did you turn on a friend, maybe even a best friend? David did this to one of his mighty men, somebody who, who swore to, to take a bullet for him or a sword in David's case. Did you fall from grace? Oh, I was up here. Everything was going well. I had it all and the Lord was so good to me and I just blew it. David was a king, the king of Israel. Are you a murderer? So was David. And someone who experienced that kind of forgiveness for any kind of sin wants to tell others where they can be forgiven too. Look at verse 6. Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters there... They will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I mean, David doesn't just say joy comes through forgiveness. He says further joy comes by, by the fact that I get to tell others how they can be forgiven too. It's the second half of the psalm. He says, for this cause or therefore let, let everyone who is godly pray to God while he, while he may be found. He gives instructions by, by declaring to others where they should look. He's speaking directly to the Lord here. It's, and his instruction is don't put off your confession of sin. Confess your sin. It's the only way to receive forgiveness. Seek the Lord while he may be found. He's echoing Isaiah 55. 
And in verse 7, he says, You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I mean, David is still speaking to the Lord, and he encourages further by proclaiming confidence in the Lord. You are, you shall be. He says people who are in sin and in silent unrepentance whose consequences confront them can come to the Lord and He'll surround them. He'll keep them from trouble. He'll hide them under the shadow of His mighty wing providing cleansing. And then God gets in on it and echoes what David says and pleads as well. Look at verse 8 and 9. Here's the Lord's response to David. Verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as a horse or a mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. It's spoken in a priestly oracle to David's confidence in God's deliverance. I mean, the Lord concurs with David and and gives his own instruction on uh, confession. God says, listen, I will instruct you. I, I, I will teach you. I will guide you. The mess that you made starts with forgiveness and then I'll guide you uh, of of what to do about the consequences that may still be lingering in your life or will be lingering by your confession. I'll do that. But forgiveness only comes through complete confession and you'll not get it any other way. God says don't be like a horse or a mule that lacks understanding must be stubbornly steered to their goal. Don't be ignorant by, in your sin by refusing, refusing to come near to me. God says, I'll forgive you, but only if you come near to me. And then the byproduct of, of confession is joy and praise. Look at verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him, fully encompass him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Verse 10 gives the capstone. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, all the the sorrows of sin and silence, refusing to repent, refusing to confess but all the, the loving kindness, the hased that awaits those who humbly and honestly come to, to God for forgiveness, they shall find mercy. And so David ends where he begins. And he completes what's called a chiasm. He, he begins the psalm with how blessed is the man who trans, whose transgression is lifted. And he ends with be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And the forgiven mouth praises God for His forgiveness and mercy. The mouth that was closed in silence, refusing to confess, is now loosed. And it gives praise to the one who forgave. And that's the goal of this psalm. It's the fulfillment of what David promised. I'll I'll teach sinners. What's he teaching? He's teaching the way that you can be forgiven so that God would be praised. That's the point. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sin shall not prosper, 
But whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. And the New Testament verse that you probably know even better, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the application of that verse should be obvious if, if we confess our sin. There are some people who are unforgiven, not because God doesn't want to forgive them, or there's no way for them to be forgiven, but because they refuse repentance and confession of sin. And there's some that are tormented by their conscience because they try to conceal their sin and keep it in silence. And until you confess, the heavy hand of God in mercy will be upon you. But all Christian, how blessed is the the man or woman whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, who the Lord does not impute his iniquity, and this forgiveness comes by, by believing that God will grant it in Christ by faith alone, and it's all made possible by, because of him. And so David is called to the witness stand and he gives testimony that salvation is by faith alone in the Old Testament as well. Now with a sermon like this and looking at Psalm 32, I, I want to give you some specific direction on confession. Because I can remember maybe sitting where you sit and hearing sermons about the need to confess and my conscience being inflamed. I, I knew what I did was wrong, and, and I'm sitting there listening to a sermon, and, and it's, just, it's just pouring coals on that fire, and, and I, wanna, I just want to get up, and I, I just want to run out of the pew and, and, and go do something uh, about it. So let me give you some specific direction. If, if you're under the conviction of sin, and you, you feel the, the dreadfulness of, of being without Christ then first of all, be thankful. Because that's the work of the Spirit. Flesh and blood does not reveal that to you, but my Father in, in heaven. So if you feel your need of Christ, it's an evidence that God is at work in you. It's not the devil, I can tell you that, and it's surely not yourself. I mean, God may have brought you into the wilderness to, that He might allure you to something better, someone better, that He can speak to your heart about Christ and... If that's you, then, then seek the Lord while he may be found. Repent and believe. I mean, lean wholly on Jesus' name and not on yourself. Come to me after the service. Come to one of the other pastors, anyone really. They'll, they'll show you. It's a, it's a work that God's begun. He'll continue it. It's not going to be based on you. It'll be based on him. But, but you respond in faith and repentance. If you're a believer... And you're eaten up by a guilty conscience, you, you, you must confess. In order to do that biblically, do it biblically. Say biblical words. Don't say, I apologize. Define your sin biblically. I slandered you. I stole from you. I lied to you. 
give enough detail to define it and take full responsibility, but not so much detail that your sin becomes the focus. Have you ever heard a testimony like that where it's just 15 or 20 minutes of, of, of the, the muck and the mire of somebody's life and they say, and then at the end, and Jesus saved me. That, that's not how confession should be. So much that your sin becomes the focus. No, give enough detail to define it biblically and take full responsibility and then ask for forgiveness. I sinned against you in this way. Will you forgive me? And when you're thinking about who to confess to and how, sin should be confessed to God first and then to those you've wronged. The circle of confession is is no wider than the offense. I mean, if you have sinned against someone in your mind, you confess it to God. You don't go to somebody... That, and say, you know, I have hateful thoughts toward you, and they don't even know. It's like, oh, wow, that's, that's nice. But God knew about those thoughts, so God needs to hear, forgive me. If you sin against someone with your mouth, then, then confess to God and those who heard you. Maybe the person doesn't even know you slandered them, but you said something. So that's not just a confession to God, that's to whoever heard you. And then maybe back to the person that you slandered if, if it would get back to them. I mean, the purpose of, re, of, of confession is to restore the relationship with God and others. And finally, there might be some really difficult stuff, some really difficult stuff in your past. I mean, it can just get so complicated, can't it? This sin laid upon that sin, laid upon that sin, and you're not even thinking rightly. And it just gets so confusing and convoluted, and you may need some help figuring out how to, to navigate that. And if that's the case, then, then go to somebody that you trust and tell them, I have something that I need to confess, something I need to deal with, and set up a time to talk about it. Seek wise counsel for proceeding on something that, that can devastate or damage other people's lives. If you did something whenever you were 16 or 17 and, and now you're 40, don't go look up somebody who's already married with five kids and confess something to their husband that you did to their wife 25 years ago without wise counsel. But the point being... Confession brings God's forgiveness and God's blessing and joy. If you'll do it right, that's what he'll give you. Let's pray. I'd rather have a church full of forgiven prostitutes and free drunkards than religious folk. The reality is many Christians are are religious, too religious to realize their need but because they don't think that they're that bad. And if that's you, I pray that the Lord's hand would be heavy upon you until He changes your mind. Father, thank You for the blessing of forgiveness, the joy that comes. Thank You for the instruction that You've given us this morning. We rejoice, Lord, that You have given us the freedom that comes in Christ. May you grant that now to anyone listening who needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.